This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. In February 1865, Union victory in the Civil War and the collapse of the Confederacy seemed all but certain. Most of the South's strongholds along the coast, through which it had funneled resources from allies in Europe, had fallen to federal troops throughout the war. And its last major seaport still standing, Wilmington, had just had its sturdiest defense demolished at the Battle of Fort Fisher in January. Because of this, Wilmington's status as the lifeline of the Confederacy as General Robert E. Lee was known to call it, was growing more threatened by the day, as federal troops pushed north from their victory at Fort Fisher toward the city. Within days, Forts Anderson and Caswell would be abandoned, and even a small skirmish along the Sugarloaf Line in what is now Carolina Beach couldn't hold off the stampede of northern troops. But this war wasn't over yet nor could those fighting to bring it to an end simply stop because the finish line was suddenly in sight. This was certainly true for the U.S. colored troops, who weren't just fighting to end the war. Every victory for the Union cause was another nail in the coffin of slavery, and the institution that had kept most of them in bondage their entire lives. At the Battle of Forks Road, local regiments and brigades of Confederate troops would mount what would be their last stand to retain hold of Wilmington. But pushing back against them was the enduring might of the U.S. colored troops, men who had more on the line than perhaps anyone else in the war. For more than a century, history forgot about this battle, even though it led directly to the fall of Wilmington. But for the U.S. colored troops leading the charge, this wasn't just about history. This was about securing their own future and freedom. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're taking a look at one of the most consequential, yet often overlooked, local battles during the Civil War. The Battle of Forks Road had been forgotten until the 1980s when local historians began researching and excavating the earthworks left behind by the the late-in-the-war battle. The principal combatants for the Union's offensive attack were several regiments of the U.S. colored troops, which were made up of free black men and former slaves who put their lives on the line to ensure that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the enslaved in 1863, remained intact when the war was over. These men wore the Union blue, and they carried the president's mission into battle. Even though just a few years earlier, they weren't even permitted by law to do so. But a lot had changed in the course of the bloodiest war in American history, and black men leading the advance was certainly a sight that most never thought they would see. For this episode... We're going to look back at this battle and why it was such a key moment in the final stages of the war, especially in Wilmington. We'll also discuss the origins of the U.S. colored troops and how they were present for more action in the Cape Fear 
than you might think. As always, I'll share with you this story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is one of our favorites, Dr. Chris E. Fonville Jr., a local historian who worked on the preservation and research into this battle's earthworks and even coined the name the Battle of Forks Road. So sit back and settle in for this new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we pay tribute to the U.S. colored troops and their role in the Battle of Forks Road. As the Confederacy began to survey its consequential loss at Fort Fisher on January 17, 1865, it knew that it was at a crossroads. As the guard of the new inlet, the fortification had been the primary defense for blockade runners entering the Cape Fear River with reinforcements bound for Wilmington. With that entry point now in the hands of the Union, it meant holding on to Wilmington, and its access to three railroad lines was more crucial than ever to keeping the Southern cause alive. But only a few opportunities to do so stood between the Confederacy and the advancing Union troops, and those opportunities were falling fast. Fort Caswell near Oak Island had guarded the old inlet, but it was abandoned and its artillery was detonated two days after Fort Fisher was taken. Then, on February 17th and 18th, the Union unleashed a relentless naval bombardment of Fort Anderson, which was built along the river on top of the ruins of Brunswick Town. However, by the morning of February 19th, it too had been abandoned by the Confederacy. Another skirmish on the Sugarloaf Line at Federal Point a few days earlier, on February 11th, had also served as an attempt to hold off the Union, but it didn't do the job. Increasingly, Confederate Major General Robert F. Hoke saw that his best chance at stopping the seizure of Wilmington would be to lure the Union troops to the entrenchments that his men had dug out about three miles south of the city. If they could aggressively attack them there, with the help of heavy artillery and about 4,500 men, they might have a shot. The location on which the Confederates had begun building these earthworks and a five-foot-tall entrenchment was actually the site of an ancient beach where only an expanse of white sand remains. It also happened to be at the intersection of Federal Point Road and a smaller side road that ran west to the Cape Fear River. In correspondence sent to his bosses in the Confederacy, Hoke dubbed the spot both Forks Road and Crossroads, although it's the former that has persisted in historical accounts. When the two armies eventually met at this spot on the afternoon of February 20th, there was little room for error by the Confederates, because their loss would mean nothing less than the immediate surrender of Wilmington to the Union and the loss of the South's final major seaport. Earlier that morning, the Federals were still in pursuit of the Confederate regiments retreating from the skirmish at Sugarloaf. They knew that the domino effect started at Fort Fisher was reaching its conclusion, and giving the enemy little time to rest and recoup could work in their favor. At the lead of the Union forces, were the soldiers of the 5th United States Colored Troops. The U.S. Colored Troops had been formed after the passage of the Militia Act of 1862, which allowed men of African descent to join the Federal Army. However, it wasn't until the implementation of the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863, that they were actually approved to be used in combat, an active recruitment of African-American men was able to get underway. Just so we're clear here, the Militia Act didn't come until July 1862, 
So for the first 15 months of the war that would ultimately decide the fate of slavery, African Americans weren't even permitted to fight in it. Eventually, the U.S. colored troops would make up about 10% of the Union's military forces, and they would also include Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Asian Americans among their ranks. Interestingly enough, the Union Navy had welcomed black men into the service at the beginning of the war, and one of those men was William Benjamin Gould, a slave born in Wilmington who escaped in 1862 under the cover of the yellow fever epidemic. Gould was rescued at the mouth of the Cape Fear River by the USS Cambridge and almost immediately swore himself in service of the Union's cause for liberty. We covered his extraordinary life in the second season of this podcast in an episode titled A Most Daring Escape. About 178,000 men would serve as part of the 175 regiments of the U.S. Colored Troops between 1863 and the end of the war. Unfortunately, they suffered heavier casualties on the whole when compared to white regiments in the war. Some reports even say that if captured as prisoners of war by Confederate forces, the colored troops were labeled or tried in court as traitors of the South. And in other, more horrific instances, they could be killed on the spot. Despite the threat of these atrocities, their sense of duty in the fight for their freedom outweighed the risk, and their value to the war effort cannot be overstated, as they injected the Union Army with dependable manpower at a crucial moment that changed the tide of the war. This can certainly be said for the role that the colored troops played in the Wilmington campaign. Although they weren't present for the actual attack on Fort Fisher, they played a significant role in the Battle of Sugarloaf, which we'll talk more about later in this episode. But their greatest contribution was undeniably at the Battle of Forks Road. Leading the pursuit of the fleeing Confederate regiments meant that the colored troops were the first to arrive on the front lines of the South's last chance to hold on to Wilmington. Hoax Confederate troops unleashed artillery and musket fire as soon as the Federal regiments were within range, and the 5th U.S. colored troops took the brunt of it. The startling assault forced them to pull back allowing Brigadier General Charles J. Payne to order Colonel Elias Wright to deploy his entire brigade of 1,600 African-American men from the 1st, 5th, 10th, 27th, and 37th U.S. Colored Troops for a stronger second attack. These men, many of whom were likely former slaves, didn't give a second thought to answering the call to action and proving that they were worthy of their spot on the battlefield. Unfortunately, their gusto was no match for the thousands of men waiting behind the heavily concentrated line of artillery erupting from the Confederate entrenchment. The 5th U.S. Colored Troops, again at the head of the charge, would suffer substantial losses in the battle, including 39 dead or wounded soldiers. With their second assault rebuffed, Wright and his men would retreat about 600 yards and settle in for the evening. The strong showing of the Confederate line on that first day of fighting at Forks Road gave Howe encouragement that it might be possible to hold on to Wilmington after all. By early morning on February 21st, small skirmishes had broke out as both sides tried to find a vulnerable point in their opponent's line. But eventually, it would be outside forces that dealt the heaviest blow to the Confederate side. Early in the day on February 22nd, news arrived that the South had abandoned its stronghold in Charleston, leading to an eruption of cheers on the Union lines. It was the jolt of good news they needed, to believe that victory was within reach. As reported by men on the ground, 
columns of smoke began rising from the direction of Wilmington, leading many to believe the southern troops were actually burning property in the city ahead of plans to abandon it. And they were right. The railroad depots that had been so important to moving the Confederacy's supplies were now clogged with Wilmington residents trying to leave town before federal troops inevitably arrived. Families fled on horse and buggy with as much as they could take in hopes of finding sympathetic shelter elsewhere. Soon, there were sightings of Union troops on the western side of the Cape Fear River, having taken Fort Anderson and started to move north toward Wilmington. With all of this news, Confederate General Braxton Bragg had no choice but to make the fateful call to Hoke to pull his men back from their post at Forks Road and prepare for the evacuation of Wilmington. The battle was over, and the only way the Union troops had even found out they had won was when a scout sent to inspect the front lines reported back that there were no Confederates to be found. At 9.30 a.m. on February 22nd, George Washington's birthday no less, Union General Alfred H. Terry marched his men into Wilmington and up Front Street with the drumming of songs like Yankee Doodle scoring the victorious moment. The Confederacy's most valuable North Carolina city, which it had almost held for the entirety of the war, had just been seized by the federal government. But even in this powerful moment, near the end of a long, bloody war, the Union forces made an egregious, but hardly surprising choice that today is downright infuriating. The U.S. colored troops, which had handled most of the fighting at Forks Road and suffered most of the casualties, were made to march at the rear of the parade. These brave men had put their lives on the front lines in the final weeks of the war, and yet they weren't even rewarded with the privilege of being on the front lines of the victory lap. Still, the fruits of their sacrifice were on full display when they arrived in Wilmington that morning, to the sight of its enslaved people, now free and celebrating the liberation the Union had brought them. They danced in the streets, and they shed tears for the prospect of a new, albeit uncertain, future. The Civil War would end only 46 days after the fall of Wilmington, at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. More than anyone in the fight, the U.S. colored troops knew all too well what had been on the line in this war. And in Wilmington, they got a first-hand look at the immediate wave of change their sacrifice had brought. As one soldier from the 4th U.S. Colored Troops wrote, Cheer after cheer they gave us. They had prayed long for their deliverance. And the 22nd of February, 1865, realized their earnest hopes. Free forevermore. Joining me now to talk further about the Battle of Forks Road and the history of the U.S. Colored Troops is our frequent guest and friend of the podcast, Dr. Chris E. Fonville Jr., who you will know as a local historian and author of several books, including Glory at Wilmington, the Battle of Forks Road. Chris, welcome back. Hunter, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Haven't we done this before? Very recently, actually. Uh, Our listeners will know that you were on our last episode talking about another one of your books and another one of our local stories, uh, Captain Ellerbrock and Boss. So, yes, this is very recent for us. Look, I always enjoy doing the Cape Fear on Earth podcast with you. Well, thank you. And we always like having you because you've got so much institutional knowledge about this area. And this actually plays into our story today because... The Battle of Forks Road is not a well-known story. It's, it wasn't a huge, huge battle either, but it has some really important implications in the story of this area. So I'm curious, a part of this history of Forks Road 
is that it wasn't well known. It, it was forgotten for so long. So when did you first hear about it and how did you learn about something that had kind of faded into the background here in Wilmington? I first heard about it from a uh, local veterinarian, Robert Doc Treadwell, World War II veteran and uh, a local uh, history buff. He was also uh, a relic hunter and took me under his wings and we'd go out to uh, private property now okay. um, and use our metal detectors to you know, uncover history. And we were out one day and he took me up, this was April 1980, up to this site on the east side of Pine Valley where he had found some fired mini balls and some canister and cannonball fragments, but he had no idea what had happened there. Uh, but there was a line of con uh, Confederate earthworks on the north end of the battlefield, and there were rifle pits on the south end that he suspected had been used by Union troops. And so we explored that day, and sure enough, we found enough artifacts to prove that there was a, an engagement there, a firefight, but nobody uh, had written about it. Nobody knew anything about the battle. So uh, I explored the battlefield, but I also started exploring the documents trying to uncover what had actually occurred there. And uh, shortly after that, uh, I went off to graduate school and ended up doing my master's thesis on the Wilmington campaign after the fall of Fort Fisher. And that's what uh, uh, led me to look much more closely at that particular engagement. So this has been with you for much of your career. For 41 years now. Um, the first time I was there, as I said, was April of 1980. And gosh, here we are at 2021. 41 years, you're right. Uh, well, I mean, this story, this was an important moment before the fall of Wilmington. You know, there was definitely a domino effect starting in January of 1865 at Fort Fisher, moving through uh, the falls of Fort Anderson, uh, the abandonment of Fort Caswell, uh, the Battle of Sugarloaf, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But why was something that was that final piece before the fall of Wilmington, why was it forgotten? I mean, wh what was it about this battle that allowed it to kind of fade from memory? Well, for one thing, it was a relatively minor engagement in terms of Civil War engagements. Mm -hmm. In some uh, documents, they refer to it as a skirmish. It was much more than that because the number of troops are involved and the length of the fighting. It's where the Confederates made their last stand. But what I found particularly in, before the fall of Wilmington, but what I found particularly uh, interesting was that the principal combatants on the Union side were U.S. colored troops. And uh, that had not been written about uh, in the Wilmington campaign anyway, and um, was just being explored more deeply by uh, Civil War historians and social historians uh, when I first started uh, graduate school. So I made that a, a major focus of my work, uh, the, the important role that U.S. colored troops played in the Wilmington campaign. So let's talk about the U.S. colored troops. I told our listeners that they arose after the Militia Act of 1862. Uh, they were allowed to be in combat after the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect on January 1st, 1863. But what kind of role were they playing in the Federal Army? Because there was some resistance to them being there in the first place. Were they used as equal standing soldiers or were they more used as, as expendable bodies to be put out into these battles so that there wouldn't be a, such heavy losses on white regiments? Well, African-Americans had played important roles in the American military through the Revolutionary War, but then by law in the 1790s, they were banned from service in the U.S. Army. Now, the U.S. Navy recruited African-Americans. The U.S. Navy and the Merchant Marines was always integrated, but not the U.S. Army until 1863. And uh, there was some uh, hesitancy, in large part because of racist attitudes, but also because of the African-Americans' lack of experience in combat. Uh, and as you know, uh, with the exception of about 100 captains, uh, African-American captains that served in the United States Army during the Civil War, all of the, uh, the field officers were whites. The colonels and the majors and the generals of U.S. colored troops were whites. African-Americans, of course, 
believed that they were uh, the equal of white soldiers in terms of their uh, combat prowess, and indeed they proved to be every bit as good combatants as their their white comrades. Well, they went into battle as anyone else would. Absolutely. Um, but they, they had to prove themselves to whites because mm-hmm. of racist attitudes. And uh, the units that fought in the Wilmington campaign, including at Forks Road and at Sugarloaf, were early uh, U.S. colored troop units. We're talking about the 1st, the 4th, the 5th, the 10th, the 37th, the 39th. So these were battle-hardened veterans who had fought in Virginia prior to coming to uh, Wilmington with the expeditionary force that attacked Fort Fisher. So, yes, there was uh, discrimination against them in the ranks. There was discrimination against them by their field officers. As you know, they did not receive equal pay. They had to pay for their own uniforms, whereas white soldiers did not. So there was a lot of discrimination against them, but they persevered. They carried on. They were determined to prove themselves the equal of their white comrades and, of course, to prove uh, that maintaining the integrity of the Union was important to them. But they were also, of course, fighting for the freedom of their brothers and sisters still enslaved in the South. Well, that's what I said at the beginning of our episode, that they knew what was on the line, perhaps more than anyone, because they had either escaped from it or they had managed to be free men uh, who were either born that way or had managed to attain that for themselves. And so I think it is absolutely uh, crucial to think about how going on a battlefield, knowing what the outcome of this war meant for them personally and how that wasn't necessarily equal for the men they were fighting beside is is a really fascinating look at at kind of the dynamic on a battlefield. Well, if the war was lost by the Union, the stakes would have been, of course, mm-hmm terrible for African-Americans. As it turns out, and historians continue to debate this, but I believe, um, and I'm not the first to come up with this theory, that African-Americans initiated their freedom with their feet. The Emancipation Proclamation was the culmination of what was already happening on the ground. Remember that when the war started, it was a war to preserve the Union. But then the human cost and the financial cost of the war by the summer of 1862 and the considerable pressure that President Lincoln was coming under by abolitionists, and particularly black abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, to expand the war effort to include freedom. And um, already there were tens of thousands of African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans, who were escaping into Union lines. Uh, Usually happened uh, along the seacoast that were occupied by Union forces. So logistically, it was easier than African-Americans who lived in the, uh, the Red Hills of Georgia. But starting in late May of 1861, they started to show up in, uh, in Union encampments and occupied cities. And uh, initially, they were treated as so-called contraband. But on the ground, at least, some Union officers like Benjamin Butler and David Hunter uh, started to use them as laborers. And then, unofficially at least, started to use them in combat roles. And uh, so what President Lincoln did was kind of a a government, uh, legitimate government policy to what was already happening. So African-Americans initiated their own freedom, um, and then President Lincoln uh, validated that with the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, it it almost seems seems kind of like a no-brainer to... Let men who want to fight for your cause fight for your cause. I mean, but you have to, again, think of the the racial dynamics of the day that, you know, fighting alongside of a white man on a battlefield uh, is a different kind of relationship than a lot of these black men have ever had. And so it just it, obviously from a 2020 lens, it seems like if, if people want to fight for your cause and fight for their freedom, I mean, let them. But that's not how it was. Well, and Lincoln struggled with this oh, yeah. um, because of uh, racist attitudes. Um, and his thinking was, well, we'll make this a military measure. By allowing African-Americans to serve the Union, we will be denying the Confederacy an important labor source. It will uh, alleviate the growing anxiety among white Northerners about having to fight in the war. Remember, by 1863, there were draft riots. 
So he thought, well, here's another pool of potential combatants among African-Americans. But sending African-Americans into frontline combat units, uh, how would that play out among white troops? In 1861, he sent off hundreds of thousands of white soldiers to fight for the preservation of the Union. And now he's expanding the war effort to include emancipation. So will there be mass desertions among white soldiers who don't want to fight alongside African-American soldiers? So all of these things had to uh, be resolved in Lincoln's mind before he ultimately made the decision. The other thing was, uh, what about the uh, enslaved African-Americans in the border states? The border states that had not left the Union, like Missouri and Kentucky and and, uh, Maryland and Delaware, there were slaves there. And in fact, the Emancipation Proclamation, as you know, did not free the slaves in those border states. Mm -hmm. Because had had Lincoln allowed that to occur, then those states might have seceded and gone with the Confederacy. So there were a lot of political uh, issues that he, he had to resolve you know, in his own mind before he decided to uh, issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, one thing that I want to mention is you and I recently attended uh, the opening of the Joseph Ryder Lewis Jr. Civil War Park in uh, Carolina Beach. And that park, which you had a hand in helping to preserve and, and, and research the history of, commemorates the Battle of Sugarloaf, which was really right before the Battle of Forks Road. And it was really the first time that U.S. colored troops would have been participating in the firefight here. And so what was their role there, and what was what was kind of the importance of that battle that led to Forks Road? Uh, U.S. colored troops comprised about one-third of the expeditionary force that helped capture Fort Fisher in mid-January of 1865. Now, other than the 27th U.S. Colored Troops, which were involved in mop-up operations at Fort Fisher, the African-Americans held the defensive line between Fort Fisher and Sugarloaf, where Confederate reinforcements had been uh, positioned. So U.S. Colored Troops were not uh, involved in the fighting at Fort Fisher. However, on the east side of the Cape Fear River, when the Union forces began their drive to capture Wilmington, which was vitally important to final military operations in uh, uh, in the South. Uh, it was the African-American units that led the advance. So that began on February the 11th, a month after the fall of Fort Fisher. And the first major battle that U.S. colored troops were involved in was the Battle of Sugarloaf. And uh, they sustained heavy casualties there. And that was just the opening engagement of what I call the Wilmington Campaign, and it lasted 11 days because, as you know, Wilmington fell on February the 22nd. So U.S. colored troops were involved in the Battle of Sugarloaf. They led the advance or the pursuit of the Confederate Army from Sugarloaf all the way to Wilmington, and their last major obstacle would be the Battle of Forks Road on February 20th, 21st. And one thing I want to make sure we mention is that 18 people, 18 men in the U.S. colored troops received the military's highest honor, which was the Medal of Honor, Mm -hmm. for their service. And three of them fought here at the Battle of Forks Road. So what do we know about these men? Uh, That's true. Christian Fleetwood, Milton Holland, and Powhatan Beatty. And I love that name. Powhatan Beatty was a slave in Virginia, um, conjuring some kind of, you know, uh, connections with the Powhatan Indians of colonial days. And he escaped slavery. And this was fairly typical. He escaped slavery. Uh, made his way to Ohio, where he ended up joining the 5th U.S. Colored Troops, which, as you know, was the lead unit uh, at the Battle of Forks Road of Elias Wright's brigade. Uh, so this was fairly typical. Now, it's it's hard to quantify this, but historians believe that as much as 80% of all U.S. Colored Troops were Southern-born, meaning the vast majority of them uh, had escaped. Now, the 54th Massachusetts, the famed uh, African-American unit, first one raised in the North that was the subject of the movie Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, they were all free blacks. Uh, but the vast majority of the 179,000 African-American soldiers in the Union Army were Southern-born. And uh, these three men who fought at the Battle of Forks Road and in the Wilmington Campaign did not win the Medal of Honor fighting here. They actually won the Medals of Honor fighting in southeastern North Carolina, uh, southeastern Virginia, a place called uh, Chaffin's Farm. Um, so there were Medal and Honor 
uh, in waiting yeah. combatants. They didn't actually receive them until April of 1865. But some notable people who were on the ground here, Four Forks Road, it kind of shows what kind of regiments and what kind of movement was happening through this area. Yeah, these were battle-hardened veterans who'd been fighting in Virginia for the better part of a year, and they were they were chosen, these units were chosen explicitly for the Expeditionary Force because they were tested uh, combatants and really good soldiers. One thing I should say, and I allude to this in the in the scripted portion at the top of our episode, but because a lot of them were escaped slaves, there was also a sense among the Confederacy that when captured, they were labeled as traitors. They were labeled as all kinds of things. And some of them were even murdered uh, as part of this. And so there was also the risk for these men of falling back into the hands of the people that they escaped by putting themselves in these situations. So there's just a, a an astonishing de- degree of bravery. Uh, the official policy was that they would be returned to their rightful owners. The government policy was that if they were captured in battle, they would be returned to their rightful owners. Initially, at least, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy threatened that any Union officers of U.S. colored troops captured would be tried as uh, traitors and attempting to, uh, not traitors, but uh, inciting slave revolt and would be executed. And President Lincoln responded to that, you know, for every officer that you execute, I will uh, execute one of your officers. So that tit for tat. And so the Confederacy backed off. But no, this was a very risky proposition. And we do have, of course, incidents where African-Americans were killed uh, rather than be taken prisoner, like uh, Fort Pillow um, in Tennessee and um, uh, at, at Petersburg, the Battle of the Crater. White Southern soldiers, Confederate soldiers, retaliated against uh, black combatants. And uh, so, yeah, it was very risky, very brave on the part of African-Americans to assume that responsibility. Yeah, because they were putting themselves directly in the line of prejudice and and Not just bullets, but in the the line of prejudice. And and racism just, I mean, it's just, again, that's the reason I wanted us to to definitely do this story and to do it around yet another, you know, commemoration anniversary of this on on February 22nd, but, um, or 20th, 21st and 22nd, but... It's it is the the story of the U.S. Colored Troops is is a fascinating act of bravery. You know, we talked about a, a very different act of heroism in our last episode with mm-hmm. you on on Ellerbrock and Boss. But this is such a, a wide scale and um, just just kind of overwhelming show of patriotism to 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 want to not only fight for your country, but fight for the freedom that you had found yourself somehow through whatever means. And so it's an incredible story. Well, they, they figured that if they could prove themselves as good soldiers, then that would demonstrate that they would also make good citizens. Mm-hmm. And of course they did. Um, and many of the soldiers who fought with the U.S. Color Troop units in Wilmington uh, after the war mustered out and remained in Wilmington and became uh, you know, important members of, of the community. Uh, in fact, as a result of the Civil War, uh, Wilmington was a black majority from 1865 until 1898, yep. which has been the subject of your recent episode. Yes. And so uh, it, it starts here very much so. And uh, and one thing I want to one thing I really liked about reading your book, uh, Glory at Wilmington, which I mentioned, is it talks a little bit about the reaction of the now liberated, but just days before enslaved people of Wilmington, not only seeing the Union forces march into town on February 22nd, but seeing colored troops as part of that liberating force. I mean, what was the reaction? It seemed there was even a story in your book that someone might have seen someone they knew. Can you imagine the excitement that African-Americans would have felt seeing black men in blue marching with their rifle muskets and all their accoutrements on the flags flapping and the music that was playing. Uh, They were playing uh, John Brown. Uh, His soul goes marching on as they're marching up Front Street. And there was just unbridled excitement among African-Americans who had remained in the city. And I did indeed find one story in the Christian Recorder, which was a Philadelphia-based African-American newspaper, of a mother uh, whose son had escaped slavery in Wilmington. As fate would have it, he joined 
one of the U.S. colored troops. We don't know his name. We don't know his unit. We don't know his mother's name. But according to this story, she recognized him in the ranks and ran out into the streets and just jumped into his arms. I imagine seeing that in person. Almost uh, moves you to tears hearing it. Ab- absolutely. And uh, I found a lot of accounts about Union soldiers, white and black, saying that the reaction among uh, the African-American citizens of Wilmington, well, residents, mm-hmm. most of them were enslaved, yeah. so not officially residents, but those who lived in Wilmington, uh, was uh, was very palpable. It was yeah. just, as I said, unbridled. The enthusiasm, the excitement uh, just poured out of them. And so that must have been a, a pretty interesting thing to see. And and I note that, unfortunately, the colored troops, despite leading the charge into the Battle of Forks Road, were at the back of this kind of arrival parade. They were sent to the back of the bus, Yeah, figuratively speaking. Yeah. They had led the advance on Wilmington. They had done all of the fighting, the vast majority of the fighting. They suffered more than half of the casualties in the Wilmington campaign after the fall of Fort Fisher. And yet when it came time to enter Wilmington as the conquering heroes and liberators, the African-American troops were sent to the back of the line. So let's fast forward uh, several decades. Uh, After this battle, after the, the end of the war, the entrenchments, the earthworks, everything that made up this battlefield of Forks Road kind of just kind of fades from memory. You know, development of Wilmington starts to become sprawling. They start moving farther out. Um, how do you go about preserving and excavating a site like this that has already been eaten into by development on kind of on all sides? Well, the area during the war was so remote. It was about three and a half miles south of Wilmington during the Civil War, but it was just in an open pond savanna. I mean, broomstraw grass and loblolly pine trees. And white and, sand from an ancient beach, like you right, mentioned. Right, just beach bottom from an yeah. ancient uh, you know, beach. And uh, Carolina bays, thick pecosins that just had bayberry bushes and uh, pond pines and brambles. The only development in that area in 1980 was Pine Valley, which abutted the east side of the battlefield. But other than that, in 1980, that was still a remote area of the, uh, the county. It was not even in the city at the time, but it was in the county. So you can imagine how remote it was in the post-war years. And the only feature was an intersection of two roads. The main road that uh, ran between Wilmington and the lower reaches of New Hanover County that was called the Federal Point Road. Southerners renamed it the Confederate Point Road during the war. We would um, consider it the modern-day Carolina Beach Road. Yeah. And at that site, there was a by road, an intersection of a by road and the Federal Point Road with the by road leading off toward the Cape Fear River. So all of the Confederate correspondence that I found all. There was not much. The Confederate correspondence that I found from General Robert F. Hoke, who commanded the Confederate troops uh, in the defense of Wilmington, was labeled Crossroads and Forks Roads. And I think he was alluding to that one feature. And so the battle didn't have a name. And I just thought Battle of Forks Roads sounds better than the Battle of Crossroads. Yeah. So I named it the Battle of Forks Road. And mm-hmm. that name uh, has, stuck. has stuck. Uh but the earthworks were still there, and that road was used until 1940 by people going out toward Myrtle Grove Sound, say. And uh, Mr. Bruce Cameron, whose family owned that property for so many years, later told me that he remembered the features, the earthworks, and it was known as the Four Mile Battery because it was roughly four miles from Wilmington. And he remembers... Uh, he remembered, uh, Mr. Bruce uh, died in uh, 2013, but he remembered going out there uh, rabbit hunting and seeing those earthworks. It becomes not a part knowing, of the community. But, but they didn't know what they were. He, he initially thought that they might be colonial boundary markers. Mm-hmm. He didn't know that they were associated with the Civil War. Only the name, the Four Mile Battery, intrigued him. But well, then they built Carolina Beach Road in 1940, and then people quit using that. But it wasn't long after the war that the veterans, of course, uh, passed away, and the whole battle passed into memory. 
And when I first went to the site with Dr. Treadwell in 1980, he called it the Battle of Jump and Run. Why? He, he thought, you know, that they were running and jumping as they were fighting. And sure enough, there there is a creek about halfway between Wilmington and the battlefield called Jumping Run Creek to this day that feeds into Greenfield Lake. Oh, okay. And so I think that when the old timers in Wilmington were referring to that battle, they would say, you know, that that, uh, that fight that took place out there near Jumping Run Creek. And Doc had some distant memory, perhaps, of that that name. So he called it the Battle of Jump and Run. But, uh, yeah, it didn't take long for it to fade into uh, uh, into the mists of time. So when did, because you helped in this effort, when did you start using metal detectors, using, um, you know, efforts to, to find what was out there? Because you found many artifacts out there. Well, that was in 1980, and I, I worked, I excavated off and on until 1983, and then I went off to graduate school and did not come back until 1995. Uh, in my absence, other people like Larry Neal Jr. Uh, sort of carried the torch along, and the late Michael Mullins from New Jersey called it a, a battlefield of national importance. A number of reporters from what was then the Wilmington Morning Star, uh, like John Meyer and Ben Steelman, uh, took an interest uh, in the uh, in the preservation uh, of the works. And then when I came back, shortly after I returned to Wilmington in 95, uh, Mr. Bruce and his family donated land there for the construction of the Louise Wells Cameron Art Museum. Yep. And so that's when I approached Mr. Cameron, uh, Mr. Bruce, as I affectionately <laughs> called him, as most people uh, called him, uh, about what I had discovered and if there was any way to uh, uh, to preserve the features and interpret the battle. And uh, of great interest to him, and I discovered this, was the story of the Horn Brothers. Which you mentioned in your book. Which I mentioned in the book. Uh, one Confederate soldier and one Union soldier, they were brothers. Hosey Lewis Horn and his brother Jacob, and they fought against each other in the Wilmington Campaign, and they were the great, great uncles of Mr. Bruce and his brother, Dan Cameron. So I said, Mr. Bruce, you've got to preserve this battlefield and interpret it. Your two great, great uncles fought here. Uh, his Confederate uh, great, great uncle, uh, Hosey Lewis Horn, was a member of the Wilmington Horse Artillery, which was the artillery unit that, was, that fought at the Battle of Forks Road. And so, uh, thanks to Mr. Bruce and his family, they, uh, they decided to preserve the features, the earthworks there, and uh, to interpret the battle. The former director of the museum, Deborah Velders, went a long way toward doing that. And Brennan, the new executive director and her staff, have gone a long way toward interpreting, preserving the history of the site and interpreting the history of the site, which I give them great credit for. And now, of course, we have two North Carolina Highway historical markers that commemorate the Battle of Forks Road. And... As you know, Stephen Hayes is doing a, uh, a monument to the U.S. Colored Troops who fought there. And all 1,600 names of the, the U.S. Colored Troops who fought in Elias Brigade's, Elias Wright's Brigade at the Battle Forks Road will be listed on the back of that monument. And that's incredible. And, and I was going to mention this for sure, that uh, he's a Durham-based uh, sculptor. Uh, his name's Stephen Hayes. And he is building a sculpture that will be placed out there. It's It's... Just even the renderings of it are kind of uh, incredible. But it, it, he has used uh, the models of people who descended from U.S. colored troops and, and, and African-Americans of the time to cast uh, basically a, a forward-marching scene of several people carrying an American flag, and these were uh, to commemorate the U.S. colored troops. Obviously, COVID has put a wrench in a lot of stuff, including the, the completion of that sculpture. It was supposed to debut last year. Uh, the current plan, as the museum has in place, is to unveil it uh, this coming November, which would be November 2021. But you're right. They do events every year. Uh, you know, the first time you and I talked about doing this episode was either last year's Battle of Forks Road commemoration or the year before. And it's a chance for the museum to... It is an art museum. It's a chance for it to broaden its place and its the sense of place in the region because you can walk right out the door and see some of those earthworks. They've been preserved in that way. And so the museum has done a, a great job of doing that. And it's thanks to, to research by you and, and those who followed you that 
the story has been uncovered, unearthed, if you will. It's Cape Fear unearthed. Exactly. It's it's a piece of the Cape Fear unearthed. And and I just I think that that's just an incredible kind of show of support for this story that could have easily just these these earthworks could have been flattened like others have been and never been remembered. Well, and it was a story that was unknown in the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And the African-American community has been so supportive of the efforts to preserve and to interpret uh, the battle and the role that African-American soldiers played there. And uh, so many of those soldiers that I mentioned at War's End ended up becoming, you know, members of the community and leading members of the community. And there are hundreds of them that are buried in the National Cemetery because, of course, they had fought for the United States Army. And there's it's, a, so it's just a wonderful story. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so proud to have and pleased to have played a, even a small role in, in, uh, in bringing the, the battle to light. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, they are buried in the, the Wilmington National Cemetery. And there's a historic marker, state historic marker, outside of the National Cemetery acknowledging the role of the U.S. Colored Troops here That's in the That's true. So in a way, there are three. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, and that marker uh, was the, the work of a, a commission that was uh, led in part by Fred Johnson, Sergeant Fred Johnson, a Korean War veteran uh, who died uh, about five years ago. I dedicate glory. You do. Yeah, uh, there's to, of him. to Sergeant Fred. Um, he was a, a good friend. And uh, that, uh, that battle and the story of that battle and, and commemorating that battle was very important to him. Is there more to learn? About the Battle of Forks Road? I mean, is there always more to learn? There's always more to learn. I have written probably the last word from from me mm-hmm. on the Battle of Forks Road. But I hope that other historians, and particularly African-American historians, come along and do more with this. There's always more to be uncovered. And as you pointed out, you know, as technology changes we might be able to uncover additional documentation that will shed greater light on the Battle of Forks Road. I've done the best that I could, but, you know, as as a white guy, white historian, I can't tell the story uh, the way that it truly needs to be told. I I really hope that a young African-American historian will come along, uh, perhaps pick up my work, and and carry it on from there. Well, and I think the... Promotion and the awareness of this story can get it to more people. There might be, there might be stories within families of people who their ancestors fought in this battle, but they didn't really know about it or it didn't have the name Battle of Forks Road. And so, over time, as as these stories get farther out into more people, uh, it can bring the opportunities to learn more. Absolutely, direct descendants of young men who fought in this battle are coming to light. Stephen Hayes mm-hmm. uh, and. The staff at the museum have worked diligently to find direct descendants of combatants at the Battle of Forks Road, and they've turned up some. And they've turned up some documents. Um, I don't know if they've turned up any portraits yet, but the the more you look, the more rocks you turn over, the more stuff you're going to find. And uh, so I hope someone will continue to do that. That's what should happen with a lot of this stuff. I mean, a lot of nameless people to us right now fought in battles like this. And especially when it comes to the U.S. Colored Troops, because as you said, in a lot of the reports of the day, they didn't list names. They didn't list, you know, where they were from or stuff like that. They were just soldier or whatever. And so if those stories can come out, I think that's really the reward of telling these stories now, just the continued research and the continued uh, awareness. And uh, where the National Archives is opening up more and more records, digital records Mm -hmm. now. So you can go to fold3.com and research U.S. color troops. So we are starting to put names um, to the soldiers. I wish we put faces to all of the names, but we're getting more and more of the names. And as I said, Stephen Hayes plans on uh, including the names of all of the combatants in Elias Wright, Colonel Elias Wright's brigade that fought at the Battle of Forks Road on the, the monument. Uh, unfortunately, most of these records are just, as you pointed out, the soldier's name, uh, what company he served in, what regiment he served in, uh, if you're lucky, uh, where they were born, what their occupation was. But uh, you'd really like to know a lot more than that. And so then you have to start looking in the newspapers for obituaries, find uh, family descendants. Maybe they've got some letters. Uh, The Christian Recorder, that Philadelphia-based African-American newspaper, is a great uh, source of material because soldiers wrote letters home and the newspaper 
um, printed a lot of those. Because they gave them insight into the war. Absolutely. And their, their feelings about serving in the army. So there's so much more that still needs to be done, but it's being done. Yeah. But, you know, the, uh, the battle now, the story of the battle is being preserved. Uh, it is being interpreted. It is being commemorated. And we have uh, the African-American Heritage Commission about five years ago erected that highway historical marker out on 17th Street to uh, the Battle of Forks Road. Yep. And then we have the highway historical marker out on Shipyard Boulevard about the fall of Wilmington that mentions, uh, you know, the, the Forks Road battle. And then the U.S. Colored Troops highway historical marker at the National Cemetery. So I'm just I'm really pleased that uh, the story is 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 getting the the recognition that it deserves. Well, and, and I think the sculpture and the ability of the museum to allow that is to be a a real jumping off point for a lot of people to come visit it, to see it, to share those names, uh, I think will be a real boost to the story in the coming years. And I think we should mention Ann Brennan and uh, Heather Wilson mm-hmm. and, and Daphne Holmes and Johnny McCoy, who's worked so hard in keeping the grounds uh, up. So many Adam people, Gilpin, yeah. who yeah. did the documentary on the Battle of Forks Road. Uh, we really appreciate you know your efforts with like your it. articles and your podcast. It's, it's a great thing to write about. It's something, it's really rewarding to see it get out to more people. So, And, and it, it's our story. It's a, it's part of mm-hmm. the, the story of the Lower Cave. Absolutely. Uh, and, and as I always encourage our listeners, we can tell you a great story here, but this is one of those places you can go visit yourself. And so I would encourage everyone to go out to the Cameron Art Museum. It is on 17th Street, uh, 17th Street and Independence Boulevard. And uh, you can go walk the grounds of these preserved earthworks. You can you can see whatever exhibit uh, the museum is doing. They often do exhibits that talk about this history or history that relates to it. Um, and you can find more about that at CameronArtMuseum.org. They're constantly having efforts to, uh, to, to promote the history that happened on their grounds. Well, and the battle was considered so important by the Civil War Trails uh, Commission that it is included mm-hmm. in the National Civil War Trails. And you will see the markers to that when you go out on site. And then you can always go into the museum gift shop and buy a copy of Glory, the Battle of Wilmington. There you go, learn, yeah, exactly. Learn even more about the battle. <laughs> yes, you can get Chris's book. On a bash promotion of the book. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, that your book was a, a vital resource for the scripted portion and for my understanding of this this story as well. And so uh, it, it's a great resource. And again, I think the just being able to to read about it and go see it is is a one-two punch of letting the story stick for people and resonate in the way it should. So, uh, Chris, thank you as always for coming back so soon after your last visit to Cape Fear and Earth. I appreciate all the work you've done with uh, the Battle of Forks Road, and uh, I, I know a lot of other people do as well. So you're helping keep the story going, and we'll keep talking about it. Thank you, Hunter. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of the Battle of Forks Road and the local contributions of the United States Colored Troops. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back soon with the next chapter from our local history book. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every Thursday. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed 
by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe now. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.